Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 44. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. Now, I'm realizing just now that I forgot to remind Wally that I was hoping to use those worldview, worldview slides again. Wally, do those happen to be up? If not, it's okay. Oh, awesome. All right, can we, can we pull those up? The, uh, you know, as, as we've done before, it, it's helpful to remember that understanding, in order to understand any psalm, it's helpful to understand the worldview that's behind it. Uh, so let's run through these worldview questions that we've gone through before. Uh, I'll read the question if you'll read the answer. Who is the Lord, the God of steadfast love and justice? What does he do? He blesses and protects those who embrace his covenant from the heart while demonstrating his justice against those who rebel against him. When does he do these things? Often in the here and now, and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace his covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for his justice. We see that same worldview running beneath the psalm today. Although, in this particular psalm, that worldview becomes a source of confusion. Because it seems like everything about this has been turned on its head. Everything is upside down. Everything is backwards and they can't figure out why. But these confused people, they take their questions and deep confusion to God. And, and in fact, they're doing so, it seems, together. This psalm seems to be structured as a call and response kind of song. Uh, maybe even with Israel's king leading the people in worship and the people joining in. And so let's listen to what they are singing so that we might learn how to talk to God in our pain and confusion as well. But first, as we come to listen to God's word, let's pray. Our, our prayer for illumination this morning is adapted from a selection of John Calvin's Institutes. Would you pray with me? Father, when even the least drop of faith is instilled in our minds... We begin to contemplate your face, which is peaceful and calm and gracious toward us because of your Son, our Lord. We still see you far off, but so clearly as to know we are not deceived. However much we are shadowed on every side with great darkness, when you show forth your mercy and shed even a little of your radiant light on us, we are illumined to enjoy firm assurance. Father, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Word can do nothing for us. And so shine your light into our hearts now by your Spirit, that your Word might work faith in our hearts so that we see your face. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Psalm 44. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, 
but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hated us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, and the sound of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come up and join me. So guys, I'm going to stand over here this morning. Right about 10 minutes before church this morning, I got a call from Miss Jenny that she wasn't feeling well, and she took one of those at-home tests, and it turns out she has COVID. So I'm just going to hang out over here for a bit. But I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever had the experience where you think you know how something works and then, bam, you realize that you didn't understand really at all? It, it can be really confusing, right? So uh, it, I, I imagine it's sort of like this. Imagine that this is the first time that you've ever seen one of these. Do you know what this is? A, a boomerang, that. That's right, but imagine it's the first time that you've ever seen one and no one has ever told you what they do. So you grab this cool curved piece of wood and if you're like me, your first thought is, man, I bet I could throw this thing a mile. So you rear back and you let it go. Yeah, I'm not actually going to throw it, just you can rest easy. 
But, but after you throw it, if you've never seen this before, things are going to get pretty confusing, right? It, you throw it, and then you're like, uh, hang on, uh, what's, what's it doing? It, it's coming back, look out! It, you can imagine that, right? Like, finding out that you've been missing a key factor, a key piece of information, it can be a really painful thing. But there's a lot of learning that can happen when you're really confused, right? Well, something like that is actually happening in the psalm that we just read. The singers thought that they understood something about God and how he worked in this world. Like we said in those worldview questions that were up on the screen, they know that God blesses his people who trust in him, and he shows his justice against those who rebel against him, who, who reject him. But, but then the confusion started. They found themselves feeling like God was rejecting them, even though they trusted him. And, and like that boomerang coming back unexpectedly, it was really painful for them. And they started looking for answers. They started trying to understand what was happening, what had gone wrong. But here's what they did that's really interesting. Instead of running away from God and trying to figure it out on their own, they ran to God instead. It's like they gathered up all of the pain and the confusion and the questions. They picked all of it, all of it up and they brought it to God and they laid it in his lap. And they said, come help. They, they kept trusting God even when they were confused. They, they trusted that he hadn't really changed, that he still loved them and he was still powerful to help. And guys, God encourages you to do the exact same thing with him. And he wants you to know that just because you're hurting or confused, it doesn't mean that he's left you. It doesn't mean that he's punishing you. I mean, after all, Jesus suffered incredible pain even though he never did anything wrong, right? And as strange as it sounds, sometimes you and I come to know him better as we share in the kind of pain that he felt. And so guys, I want you to run to God when you're hurting, not away from him. And I want you to keep trusting him because we have a God who uses even the most painful things that we experience to actually bless us and help us to know him better. And that's why we call this good news. You believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seats. So like I told the kids, the confusion and the pain in this song comes as the singers search for answers. They, they need answers because things are not going as expected. They thought they understood something about the Lord. They, they thought they knew how God worked. After all, like we said, that worldview that we recounted earlier is deeply ingrained in their hearts. They know the Lord, both who He is and what He does, and they have embraced Him from the heart. And so why, in the middle of this psalm, why are things so, so bad? Well, as we explore this song, we're simply going to follow the thought progression that it contains. And, and so I want us to start with this question. What have we heard and seen about God? What have we heard and seen about God? 
Because the things we've heard from others and seen for ourselves, they do actually tell us something about Him. How God has been in the past informs our expectations about today. Indeed, the expectation of God remaining the same today and tomorrow as He was yesterday is the foundation of this psalm and it's the foundation of our faith today. And so with the singers in verses 1 through 8, let's revisit the glorious past of God's people to remember what we have seen and heard as well. The singers start with the distant past in verses 1 through 3. Look there. They pray to God, acknowledging what they've heard from their fathers. How God's delight in His people produced powerful redemption in the past. The, the days of old they've heard about seems to be a reference to the conquest of Canaan, of the Promised Land. After God rescued His people from slavery in Egypt, He led them through Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. But when it was Joshua who led the people across the Jordan River on dry land, dry ground, then began the conquest, the very conquest, that that first generation of the Exodus had believed was impossible. Strong cities and giant peoples fell by the sword of the Israelite army. As they say in verse 2, the nations were driven out, but God's people were planted in that good land. The peoples of Canaan were afflicted, but God's people found freedom in that place. In those days, it was God's people who experienced blessing and protection, while those who rejected the Lord, who rebelled against Him and His covenant, suffered disaster. But I want you to notice something in verse 3. They make it clear that the conquest was not successful because their fathers were something special. Uh, because their victories, the amazing exploits under Joshua, their victories were not their victories at all. They were God's. Uh, another says, to be sure, the fathers fought for the land. For what God promises is enjoyed by obedience to what He commands. Yet, they knew it was not their sword, but God's hand. That is, God's personal action that gave them the land. It wasn't their arm, but rather God's arm, His personal strength that saved them. It, it wasn't the goodness of God's people that led to their success in the past. Rather, as it says, it was the light of God's face, His countenance lifted up over His people in favor, his, giving them their, His smiling pleasure that caused them to triumph. He, he delighted in them, it says. And that's why they were planted securely in the land. Now, this emphasis on God's saving love overflowing into saving actions in the past led another to suggest that there is no question here of looking back to a race of heroes that has since degenerated in order to explain the distress that shows up in verse 17. In other words, the disaster has not come upon God's people and the low place that they inhabit in the eyes of the world is not happening because their present leaders are somehow less than their fathers. Because God has always 
only ever used weak human beings as instruments in his hands to accomplish his purposes. Yes, their fathers may have accomplished great things, but it was only because behind and beneath their work, a great God's loving heart was leading him into loving action. Here and now, the New Testament church has heard and seen the same. When you and I look to the distant past, we see how God's Spirit has worked through fallen and weak people like the apostles and Lydia and Barnabas and Phoebe to accomplish great things, advancing His kingdom powerfully so that today we can actually say that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth through faithful yet flawed pastors like Augustine and Calvin and Knox and Machen, through the ordinary faithfulness of men and women, weak men and women in the church, God has shown His personal, powerful love for His people in the past, causing His church to be planted and to flourish. It's because He delighted in His people then that we should expect God to remain faithful to us today in our own time. Indeed, as we continue into verses 4 through 8, we learn that what the singers have heard from their fathers has actually been confirmed by their own experience. With their own eyes, they've seen God's loving actions toward them and God's just actions against His and their enemies. Uh, These verses, 4 through 8, actually serve as a profound profession of faith in God. Uh, Look at it. In verse 4, they name God as their king, and they look to His sovereign power to save them. And and in verse 5, they confess that it was through God and through His name that they themselves have experienced victory over their enemies in their own day. Verse 6 actually echoes verse 3 as they confess that their hope and their confidence is the same as their father's. They don't trust in their own weapons, their bows. They don't expect their swords to save them. Rather, their hope is in God, who has in their own day saved them from their foes and shamed the enemies of God and His people. And That's why they say in verse 8 that they, they have kept their faith in God intact. They have boasted in Him continually. They have given thanks to Him. I don't want you to hear that. Don't hear what they're not saying. They are not claiming to be sinlessly perfect. But I want you to hear what they are saying. They're saying that the overarching pattern of their life and practice flows from a true understanding of who the Lord is. Uh, Another puts it like this. They have not deviated from their dependence on Him or from their understanding of the uselessness of earthly power. They do not rest on an ancestral faith, but they make it their own through through personal allegiance to Him as King and through personal devotion to Him as God. Today, you and I echo that same faith as we acknowledge Jesus as the King God has appointed over His people. Uh, Of course, we confess that our allegiance to Him is not perfect because we struggle with heart idols that pull us in all sorts of directions. We confess that our devotion to Him is not what we want it to be. 
because our hearts are still prone to wander. But even so, we readily confess that earthly power is not what will make this world right. His power will. We confess today that our own strength is not enough to build the church today. But Christ is building His church today. And wherever the church today is healthy and whole, it's because the Lord is making it so. Wherever the church is doing good work and pushing back against evil, it's because we know that our King is on the move. Wherever sinners are being restored to God and finding a home in the family of God, it's because Jesus is still, as they prayed, ordaining salvation for His people. In the wider church and here among us at Trinity, we have seen and heard a lot about God for ourselves. We know His love and His power. We've seen His commitment to us. And so we, like them, cling to Christ in faith, boasting not in our faithfulness, but in His, giving thanks to His name forever. But here, if you go back to the psalm and you pick up the flow of thought, we need to understand that it's actually because the singers know and trust in God that they are so confused. God's people here are clinging to Him, but things seem upside down. They know that the Lord blesses and protects those who embrace Him from the heart, but what they are experiencing feels like God's rejection, not His favor. And so in verses 9 through 16, we arrive at the point of pain. And we have to ask this question. What do you do when what you've heard and seen about God doesn't line up with your present experience? What do you do when what you've heard and seen about God does not line up with your present experience? What do you do when your expectations are turned on their head? When you expected victory, but experienced defeat? When you expected blessing, but suffered disgrace? This is where both pain and confusion rise, because for the singer, the glorious past is in sharp contrast with the disastrous present. The, the picture of disaster in these verses is complete. The present tense of these verses reflect the present experience of the singers. One points out how the distress of God's people deepens with every line through verses 10 and 12, with rout Spoil, slaughter, scattering, and slavery. But worse, worse than all of this is their inner defeat. It's described there in, in verse 15. It's a complete loss of confidence that comes because they have accepted the world's evaluation of them. Go back and look at verse 13. The You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You can imagine the mockings that they have heard. And then in verse 15, you can hear how that has pierced all the way down into their hearts. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. 
They are more than defeated. They are demoralized. But what's even more confusing is that the singers are aware that all of this is being done by God himself. Did you notice all the second person singular verbs in verses 9 through 14? Listen, you, talking to God, you have rejected. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword. These statements of God's actions, one says, stress that life comes direct from the hand of God. It is in this way we are to understand experiences, good or ill. Some find it helpful to distinguish between the directive will of God and the permissive will of God. But the Old Testament does not encourage this. Rather, it assures us that God directs all things. We don't actually know the specific situation that inspires the song, although it's clearly some national disastrous defeat at the hands of enemies. But knowing the specifics really aren't that important for us right now. Because we can identify with these feelings of confusion. Throughout church history, we have seen how God's people have gone through seasons of joy and sorrow, bounty and famine. There are times when the darkness seems so strong and the church so weak. Even today, we know the wider church in the West, who used to enjoy great favor, is now viewed with scorn by so many. And here at Trinity, we know how we've gone through times of plenty and times of deep want, when good plans came to nothing, and faithful people endured much suffering and even injustice. Like these singers, we've heard and seen so much about the Lord. We know about His love. We know about His delight in His people. We own Him as our King, who does ordain salvation for His people. But when what we know doesn't line up with our present experience, it's like that boomerang the first time it gets thrown. When it starts its turn, we're confused. The reversal of expectations, that feeling of defeat, is deeply troubling. And when the pain sets in, we start looking for answers. We know something about God. We know He's in control. We know that He is both good and strong, so what's going on? What's happening? That search for answers is what we hear in verses 17 through 22. Look there. And it's here that the singers are actually able to rule out some things, rule out some explanations for what they're experiencing. There are some explanations for suffering that don't fit them. First, in verses 17 and 18, they are not suffering because of their own unfaithfulness to God. Their defeat is not because they've broken covenant with Him. Like we said earlier, they are not arguing for their own sinless perfection here. Uh, but here they are appealing to God, to the God who in verse 20, look there, the God who would know if they are lying. They're appealing to Him that the same faith that they confessed in verses 4 through 8 
has been lived out through loyalty of heart and conduct, as we see in verses 17 and 18. So the suffering that they are experiencing cannot be explained as punishment. It can't even be explained as the natural consequences of their sin. For you and me today, we tend to associate suffering with punishment. We often go through life, we live with the assumption that if we do what is right, then things will go well for us. Even if we aren't expecting it to be sort of a quid pro quo kind of thing with God, we associate obedience to God with blessing from God. Likewise, when we're doing what we know is wrong, suffering and difficulty, even though it's painful, isn't surprising. And you need to hear that from the scriptures, neither one of those expectations is totally wrong. Uh, Scripture speaks to these ordinary expectations. That's actually how the psalmist worldview developed in the first place. But here I need to stop and say that some of us aren't quite so sure that the pain that we are experiencing isn't a consequence connected to our sin. Maybe we can actually see some connections. Maybe we can see how sinful choices in the past are still producing painful effects for us in the present. Now, now please, please understand what I'm saying here. For every believer in Christ, for every believer in Christ, we must learn that there is no punishment. There is no wrath in what God sends our way. If we understand the work of Jesus on the cross, we will know that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that there is no punishment for sin left for any of his people. But such is his fatherly love for his adopted children that he will chastise us. He will discipline us and correct us, even in painful ways, so that he might fit us for his kingdom, for life with him fully, so that we might lose our hopes of finding life apart from him. But hold on to this truth that punishment and God's fatherly discipline of his children are two radically different things. Yes, we may suffer the sting of consequences for our sin, But because of our Father's love, even that pain is accomplishing a good purpose for us. Because, as Hebrews 12 puts it, He intends to produce in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But what about that innocent sufferer? What about the innocent sufferer? Some of you may be able to say that before God, you don't know anything that you've done wrong, it, connected to the suffering that you are presently experiencing. Uh, although many people may, like Job's comforters, accuse you or say that you must be hiding something, that really might not be the case for you. Uh, like the innocent sufferers in verses 17 through 22, like Job himself, you are sure that in this matter, you are not guilty. It really does feel like your covenant keeping has resulted in a death sentence. 
feels like punishment, but you haven't done anything wrong. And I know that that is real life right now for some of you. You're experiencing all kinds of suffering, even though you have kept the faith and you've done all the right things. Like Rodney, doing the faithful thing at work cost him his job. Or some of you have striven hard to fulfill the vows that you made to God at your child's baptism, only to see your child renouncing the faith and attacking you. Some of you have spoken the truth in love to others, and you have found yourself maligned for it, cut off for it. When we suffer after being faithful, we grasp for explanations, we venture guesses, we rack our brains, but we come up empty. We, we know the things that we've heard and seen about God. We rely on His goodness and His power. We know His love and His delight in His people. We name Him as our King and our God, and we'll give thanks to Him forever. But what are we supposed to do when what we know about God doesn't line up with our experience? Really, really what we're asking here is, where's there room for hope? I want to encourage you with two things that this psalm provides for you. The first is actually just the psalm itself. This is a psalm of lament, a prayer to God, acknowledging that something is deeply wrong, but going to Him for help. Pain and confusion like this does one of two things. It either drives a person away from God or toward Him. And sadly, many people who are confronted by the difference between what we know about God and what we experience, they'll simply deny the existence of a good and powerful God. They'll abandon Him. But that is not at all what these singers have done. They approach God in loud prayer, talking about the disquiet of their souls to plead for God's help. As another says, God's ways are a mystery. The afflictions of life are are often inexplicable to the human eye and contrary to what God has already proved himself to be. The only recourse is to fly to God in prayer. And so listen to this prayer so that you might learn to lament like them. They pray boldly in verses 23 through 24. They pray against God's seeming forgetfulness amid this terrible reversal. In the Garden of Eden, God told the serpent that he would go on his belly, and he would eat dust, and he would be crushed. And yet here, God's own people are on their belly in the dust of a crushing defeat. But because they know the Lord, they ask him to act according to his steadfast love. And you and I need to learn how to pray in that same way, to be willing to ask the Lord to wake up and help. Another said, although it's picture of the sleeping Lord here in these verses, although this picture of the sleeping Lord in verse 23 might seem naive to us, we should remember that it was actually acted out in the New Testament to teach a lesson that we still find relevant today. When you are suffering in a storm that is not your fault, will you complain about the Lord who's sleeping in the back of the boat? 
Or will you, like the disciples, complain loudly to him? Yes, their faith was small and it was weak as they questioned the care of Jesus for them. But their faith was still directed toward him. They were still talking to him. And they were not disappointed in the end. There is hope here, even as you and I learn how to lament. Giving voice to our troubles and talking about them to the one who is both loving and good is itself a help to us, even if we still have to wait on him. But this actually leads us to the second encouraging thing that the psalm does. It supports us by pointing us to an unexpected explanation for our suffering. An unexpected explanation for our suffering. It it doesn't even develop the idea of it. But look in verse 22. They say, yet for your sake. We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the most important point. God's people suffer for His sake. Because they are clinging to Him, they hurt. Not because of anything they've done, but only because they are in fellowship with Him are they experiencing pain. And this is striking because another suggests it implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. Suffering is the price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. And if so, a reversal as well as a victory, may be a sign of fellowship with him, not alienation from him. What an incredible idea. Our pain is not a sign of God's abandonment, but rather how we experience close relationship with him. And it totally makes sense that such an idea could not be fully developed in this song. To be sure, there are other hints about this idea throughout the Old Testament. But the fuller explanation of this reality had to wait until Christ came. And in the person of Jesus, we see the true innocent sufferer. The one who never broke fellowship with God, never broke covenant with Him yet who suffered more deeply than any other. As he carried the cross of our shame, he himself was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He himself was rejected as he bore our sins, and it was his soul that was bowed down into the dust of death itself. But in his ultimate suffering on the cross, this place of apparent defeat, we actually see the victory of God over his and our enemies, over death and over him who held the power of death, even the devil. We see in Jesus God answering the longing of his people, rescuing us from our affliction and oppression and redeeming us for the sake of his steadfast love. And so today for you and me, the cross of Jesus becomes the lens through which we look at all of our experiences as as His people. 
Have you ever noticed how much of the New Testament is spent talking about suffering? Suffering as Christians, as followers of Christ. It's all throughout the New Testament. We are encouraged to believe that the pain we experience is not because of any wrong that we have done. It has to be understood as suffering for the sake of Christ. It's suffering not for the sin that we've done, but simply because we are united to him and live in fellowship with him. It's as Paul said, himself no stranger to suffering. It's as he said in Philippians 3, we share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. But that is actually the means by which we share in his resurrection life. This is the reality that's behind the confession of faith in the service today. This view of suffering as fellowship with God is actually the very thing that is going to lead Paul to quote verse 22 in Romans 8. He says that we are, for his sake, being slaughtered all the day long. And yet because of Christ and our union with him and his death and his life, Paul quotes it not with the despair, not with the despair of the more than defeated, but with the conviction that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so as Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, although something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Today, you and I have heard and seen more about God than even the singers of Psalm 44. We, we have seen Christ crucified, the innocent one passing through death itself for the sake of love and redemption. And because he lives, we know that death is not the end of the story and pain will not have the last word over us. And so as another said, believe in the darkness what you have seen in the light. And as you believe it, gather up all your pain and confusion and your questions and take them and lay them in your father's lap. Lay them at the feet of him who suffered for you who rose up from his eternal glory to come and to help you. Cry out to him still, but wait for him with hope, because he still delights in you, and he says he is coming soon. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this word, and we ask that you would cause it to take deep root in our hearts, that we might walk through this present evil age, willing even to suffer for the sake of Christ, that we might know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, that we might be like him in his life as well. This we praise, Father, earnestly, and for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.